what pops up a beer or a cold libation Let me tell you how I wrote this little theme I went and took a call from brother Jason And he tells me that he has a little dream He says he needs a backwards intro to begin his podcast And I ask him what you got He said I'll start off with some talking And some moody clips of popcorn fighting Fantasy explorations and some groundness exploitation Kickstarts that I'm watching and some blind unboxing Full month horror movie marathon Sometimes I'll let the dogs come on Contest and of course you know it's all about games I said slow down let's just start with the name It's the Nerds RPG Variety Podcast With the other Jason Joining me tonight is John Allen Large, the Red Dice Diaries RPG Podcast. How are you doing, John? I'm not too bad, Jason. Yourself? Oh, excellent, excellent. I'm glad you could join me. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, I, I know these days have been kind of busy for you guys. So, yeah, I mean, we, with the with the run to Christmas, both myself and my wife are working, and we do different shifts, so it's all a bit mad at the minute. And then trying to get ready for Christmas, and as I'm sure everyone's aware, of like the current global situation is just adding like an extra like level of pressure on for like everybody. So, right, yeah, it's it's tough. So, yeah. but we want to get away from that. We kind of use games as an escape. So yep. the idea here is we're going to talk about something else for a little while. I apologize. I don't know if you can hear him in the background. Yeah, I um, can hear him. Yeah. <laughs> can, can you hear him? So I don't know if the listeners will hear the dogs or not, but my, my dogs are, we've got them created right now. So I can do this interview with John, but so you might hear them in the background. They're not in pain or anything. They're just hearing noises outside and, and, and unhappy. They can't go interact with it. So I'll say just letting you know, they're still there. Yep. That's all they're doing, which is fine. So I came, so we're talking about rules complexity. I came across an interesting quote, and this is from a gentleman named Steve Johnson. Steve Johnson was, is with Hex Games, and maybe their most famous game is Hobomancer. And Hobomancer is a game where you play hobos that have magical powers in the 1930s. Okay. And um, so hobos, I think, maybe, uh, I, I think the word, the way we use it, or the way I use it, and most Americans use it maybe a uniquely American thing, but the kind of homeless people that ride the rails and or do things I think are probably worldwide to some degree. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the term hobos, uh, like you say, it's an, an American sort of originated term, but it's it certainly transitioned over here via like American films and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. even if we don't use it over here, you know, we sort of at least understand what it's referencing. And like right. you say, like having a transient sort of group of people moving around it happens everywhere basically yeah definitely definitely so but we're, we're actually not going to talk about hobos but but i just put that in context in case people wonder where, where i get this quote so he has a patreon and, and he has some articles that are behind a paywall and i i'm not going to read much of this because it is behind a paywall but he has a couple definitions he has an article where he talks about crunchier rules to lighter rules and he calls them hard rules and soft rule hard systems mm-hmm. soft systems but but the thing i found really interesting is trying to define crunch and the way he does that is he talks about a point of contact which is a direct connection between the rules and the game so the idea here is if you have say a modern game where you have armor piercing bullets in the game if you have a rule about armor piercing bullets piercing armor that's a point of contact and then the what he calls crunch, and these are definitions he made up for his own use, but what he calls crunch is the prevalence of points of contact in the game. 
So the more points the, the rules touch your fiction, you know, the crunchier the, the game is, which I think is, a, you know, a pretty good definition for that. Yeah. So with, with that aside, your history, you've played what people would consider lighter games like Fate and, yeah. and, you've, yeah. and you've played crunchier systems. Yeah. So, so I think you're, you're pretty well um, positioned to, to discuss this with me. And, and what I found in, in playing different games is the more rules there are, say the crunchier the, the rule system is, the more rule discussion that happens during the game, the more yeah. maybe not metagaming, but more, I, I don't know, you're, you're smarter than I am. You probably know the right term, what I'm trying to say, but the more meta discussion, I guess. Oh. Yeah, I mean, I think certainly, I mean, of somebody talking from my own experience, but I think certainly whenever you run a game, there's inevitably people who show up for a game who maybe don't have like the rule book or don't have a copy of the system or something like that. And I think the when you're in that sort of situation where some people perhaps come into a game like not knowing all the ins and outs of a system, as a GM, the onus is somewhat on you to sort of handhold them through, sort of at least enough of an understanding for them to play the game, so then they can sort of like learn as they're playing along. And I think by necessity, if a game has more rules, obviously that's more you've potentially got to explain to them. Now, not always. I mean, you could have lots of rules. Um, if you take if you take something like um, the D twenty games or some or like even fifth edition D and D, that has lots of rules. But because they mostly refer back to like a central mechanic, if which is obviously the the D twenty plus a plus or minus a modifier, try and beat a certain number. Because most things, not all, but most things refer back to that to some degree. Once you've got a lock on that core mechanic it's very easy to sort of get by in the game with just knowing that core mechanic, which isn't difficult to understand. Whereas if you have a game with a, a lot more sort of subsystems that don't really sort of interrelate to each other, you're by necessity as the GM going to have to sort of take your players through that more either at the start and sort of front load all of your sort of rules explanations, or there's going to be points during a game where you're going to have to take a little break and say, right, I just need to explain this because like, the rules for hacking or something or whatever have only just come up and you're like, right, in order for you to be able to do what you want your character to do within this framework, I'm going to have to explain a certain amount of the rules to you if you don't understand them already. Agreed. And and actually, my premise is faulty from the start. So so everybody just disregard what I said about the idea that you'll talk about rules more because some, right, as I think about it, there are light rule or what we would consider not crunchy rules, lighter rule systems, games with less rules that you talk about the rules a lot because they're part of the game. And I'm thinking, you know, I, I I've read fate. I haven't ever played fate. I would think fate might play into this. I know like cipher system does they're, they're even though these are lighter rule systems, there are things you negotiate in those rules where you're trying yeah. to argue an aspect or like in cipher system, you're arguing, well, I, you know, I'm bringing this into bear, that into bear. And, and so you're actually part of the, the way the game works is to kind of negotiate or discuss the rules to figure out what a target number is. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the two, I can let's say cipher system. Yeah. Fate most definitely. Um, the, the vast majority of power by the apocalypse style games also have these sort of, uh, 
this sort of like I'm probably not using the right term, but they have this sort of like meta rules level where the actual discussion of the rules and the way the mechanics work and discussing them is part of the game, as you say. Mm-hmm. So in something by like Power of the Apocalypse, when you make a test, it might then say, right, you've effectively got um a number of these fictional points that you can spend to choose different outcomes based on how successful you are. So if you in like a standard Power of the Apocalypse game, when you do a task, you roll two D you roll two D six, add a modifier. If you get seven or less, like the GM says what happens, but basically you failed the test or something's gone wrong. If you get a if you get between that and a ten, then you've done all right or some sort of minor complications happen, but you've not succeeded fully. If you get a 10 plus, you've succeeded fully. And the way that works with some checks is there might be like a list of possible outcomes you can have. And if you get the major success, it might say, right, you can pick three of these outcomes. If you pick, if you've got some middling success, it might be like, you can pick one of those outcomes. Um, there'll be four, five, six of those outcomes. And one of them is always, you get away without any negative effect. So if you get the middle in success, you can be like, well, I could choose to just not have any negative effect, but then I've not got anything positive. Or I can take something positive, but there'll be some sort of complication. Whereas if you get the full success, you can pick a little bit more freely. But that discussion it is all part of the game and sort of the narrative. So I think you're absolutely right. There are some games where the rules are more separate from like the narrative that's occurring or the story that's occurring. And there's other games where, for better or worse, depending on your opinions, the the rules and the narrative are a bit more sort of closely intertwined. Right. And so through no, you, you know, through, through, through no prior planning of my own, we've kind of stumbled to where I want to get to. And that's the idea of, and this is going to vary player to player. Some yeah. players like discussing the rules during the game. They, they don't mind that meta, those meta discussions in the middle of the game. In other players, the, the term you'll p- hear people talking about is it pulls them out of the game or things like that. Yeah. And, and so some people don't want to, you know, they'd rather play and they, you know, might roll dice here and there, but they'd rather not hear about, you know, a five minute, you, you might not want that five minute sidestep where you're discussing rules and then going back to the game. Where it, so, in your in in your experience, what what kind of player are you? How do you fall on that spectrum? Well, I, I have a slightly uh, without meaning to offend anyone, because I know everyone's got their, their different ideas and what they enjoy. I have a slightly sort of laissez-faire attitude towards when like, people talk about immersion and stuff like that, mm-hmm. because ju- just because of my, my situation, most of my games are played online, and with the best will in the world, it doesn't matter how good. And I've played I've played in some great games and some great. GMs, games that I've been really enthusiastic about, I've really thoroughly enjoyed. But there's never been a game that's been so immersive that I've forgot that I'm a guy sitting in a chair, looking at a computer screen, playing a game and rolling virtual dice and whatever. There's never been a game so immersive that I've entirely forgot that. But, you know, you can sort of, you set that aside. You know it's there. You don't forget about it, but you set it aside and you just concentrate on your enjoyment of the game. And I feel... To, to a certain extent, I feel the same way about rules discussions. It's um, it's why I, when I'm when I'm trying to talk about like how sort of crunchy a rule system is to use a term, 
for me, it's always a case of is the la- is the amount of crunch justified within that game, and does it impact my enjoyment? Now, there's some games like Power by the Apocalypse. If I go in, I know what I'm going to expect. So, having a bit of a discussion about oh yeah, I'm going to pick this consequence, or I'm going to do this, or if I'm playing something like um, Scum and Villainy, or right, we're doing like a, a mission phase at the start where we set out a plan and we do a roll to see how well the plan goes before we get into the actual role play bit. That that doesn't really ruin my immersion or anything like that, because it's just part of the game. And once that bit's done, I then jump into the game with as much enthusiasm as I would have done if I was playing an entirely different game. If we're playing something like D&D, though, where, for me personally, the the discussion of rules isn't like an integral part of the game. If we were to suddenly like slow a D&D game down and we had to have like a, a five, ten-minute debate about like how much about whether like falling damage is like realistic or how much falling damage I'm going to take. And or I'm landing in like the grass. So does that mean I take less damage than if I'd landed on like a hard surface? Because it's not like an implicit part of the game that that discussion will be taking place. I don't really feel that having that discussion in like a D&D setting would add a lot to my enjoyment of the game. I'd far rather the, the GM go, oh, it's D6 hit points for every 10 feet. R- roll my D6 and just move on. Right. And if and maybe that's a discussion I had after the game, but yeah, 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 that's where you just want the GM to make a decision and so you can move on and play. That's it, and I, and I think uh, whilst I enjoy games that both have sort of slightly more complicated and slightly simpler rules, it depends on the, the sort of situation because, like I say, um, to reference Scum and Villainy, which I did earlier, which for anyone who's listening who's not familiar with, is basically a are powered by the apocalypse of Star Wars with the serial numbers filed off. You're playing like your hand solo, like smuggler types, you know, trying to do your jobs, keep your spaceship running. And each game you you get a choice of like these are the missions available. You pick one of those missions, you come up with a plan. The plan you come up with and the resources you have to bring to bear basically determines the difficulty of the role. You then make a role to like see what sort of situation you're in when the game starts. So if the role goes badly, when the game starts, things have already gone south, like laser bolts are flying, the, the missions are washed, you've just got to try and get out there with like your hide intact. Whereas if you do a really good role, you might be in a really advantageous position when like, the mission starts, but you've still actually got to role play through like the sort of the enjoyable bit of the mission. So it's like, um, you know, you've seen like these Ocean's Eleven and stuff. And they sort of they start at the crunch point and then you sort of find out about the mission. But it's mainly the sort of like the planning as one bit and then the actual mission itself as a separate bit. And that's all part of that game. So I really enjoy that. But like I said, with some other some other games, it's not really such a strong part of the system. But again, if there's a, if there's a little bit of rules discussion, it doesn't impact my enjoyment. But if it goes on beyond a certain point and it, it's difficult to quantify, it's a very nebulous point that varies depending on the game. That if it goes on beyond a certain point, then I get that feeling where I'm like, oh, the, the, we're really just sort of debating this for the sake of debating it. It's not adding a great deal to the game. And as you were rightly saying, we could shelve it for the moment and we could just have this discussion after the game. And then it's not sort of pushing back the actual game bit, the bit we're all here to enjoy. And it's not taking up the time. Because obviously, if we're, all, we're all pushed for time. We all only have so much time to play in a session. So if you're playing, if you're playing for like four hours in a night and then two of those hours is like chewed up by a rules discussion with just to like sort out a minor little problem 
then you, you've halved your game time. And I'd much rather have, even if it disadvantages my character, I'd much rather have an extra two hours a game and then afterwards go, oh, do you know what? If this pops up in the next game, we're probably going to do this. And I'm fine with that. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. So let me ask you this, and, and this is an aside, but you're uniquely in place to answer this. I, I know at one point back you know, before COVID and, and probably what actually I think well before all this kicked in, but, but you guys used to two LARPs, right? Yes. That's you right, used yeah. to do some live action role playing. And yeah. I, I'm not familiar, obviously, with the specific rules of, of the games that you played in. Yeah. Uh, the the ones I know of over here for magic or like the vampire games, you know, a lot of times they would use paper, rock, scissors, or use different kind of yeah. little mechanics to, to work out conflicts or to do certain effects. Did in your experience of those, did that ever pull you or, or did you ever experience anybody else complaining the idea that pulled them out of the game or? Yeah. Yeah. A, a lot of time. There's, there's a bit of the, the LARP I go to like the Laurie and trust system. It's like a, it's a festival LARP. So like it's quite big. The rules are quite simple, you know, so everyone can just get involved and have fun. And that has its upsides. It's very easy to get into. It also has its downsides because it can be quite easy to just like miss plot that's going on because obviously there's hundreds and more people at the, the bigger events. So the refs sort of like run out bits of plot and sort of drop stuff in. But if you just like don't happen to be in the right place at any of those times, you could go a whole weekend without bumping into any plot. And it's up to you to sort of manufacture your own entertainment. Now, I'm fine with that. I can do that. I can wander around and enjoy myself. That's great. But I know for other people, it's a bit more difficult. But um, in turn, there is a sort of standing joke there of like people sort of saying like various out of character things have like spoiled their immersion. And it's become something of an in-joke at that system. I'm assuming other LARPs in the, in the UK at least. But um, you'll always get someone complaining about something. Like you'll see um, someone will have set a tent up and they'll have like a they'll have like a slightly modern like LED light, light on the outside of the tent or something for safety purposes so someone doesn't trip up the guide rope and you hear someone sort of either jokingly or sometimes unfortunately seriously saying like, oh, look at that modern light. That, that's ruining my immersion of the game. And I'm like, I'm like, look, mate, I, I, I'm, I, I'm a big bloke dressed as an orc or whatever in a field in the middle of the UK, surrounded by tents. There's like food vendors over there let's not delude ourselves i'm not saying it's not a great deal of fun it is but it's not like a full like fantasy like immersive experience where you're like oh my god i forgot i was in a field and it was people in costume and whatever so it's become sort of a bit of an in-joke um this whole thing but yeah there's always people who complain in any sort of role play or setting i've been in larp or tabletop there's always been people who talk about things which bring them out of immersion and i think if you're like an event organizer for LARP or you're a GM for tabletop, it's very difficult to do anything about that because the the things which could potentially like bring someone out of a game or sort of impact their immersion are so individualized down. I mean, I mean obviously there's like the silly stuff like, you know, like if you, I don't know, if you if you turn up to a fantasy LARP and you were dressed like a 40k space marine or whatever, obviously, yeah, that's that's a ridiculous thing. But when you when you sort of get past the obvious silly stuff, it's so individualized to different people what will bring them out of the game or what will cause them to sort of lose their immersion, if you want to call it that. It's very difficult as an event organizer or as a GM to sort of take that all into account 
And if you and if you could run a perfectly immersive experience for for one person, it wouldn't be for another person. So I, I think certainly from my perspective as a player, I, I just try not to let it worry me too much and just focus on enjoying the game. And as a GM, I just go right. I'll just try and run an enjoyable game. And I would hope people would be sort of mature enough to accept the fact that we're never going to have a, until the event sort of like Matrix style like VR, we are never going to have a fully immersive experience. The best we can hope for is to run a game that's enjoyable. We all have fun. We get to have a few laughs. We maybe get some like genuine emotion connected with plot lines and we all enjoy ourselves while we're doing it. I think that's the best we can hope for. I I agree and, and and leave the Holy Grail references at the door, right? <laughs> That's the Monty Python I mean, references. See it, see it. And, um, no, I don't want anyone with like torches like storming your podcast or anything. But I, I've got to confess that like beyond Holy Grail, I'm not a massive fan of Monty Python, it, even though I'm like from the UK and I realise that's that sacrilege to like say that. But um, you know, like I, I'll, I'll say my sort of benedictions to like Saint John Cleese later, but. Um, so, so, so for me, when when people and there's always people who like go into the Monty Python things, it's it, it does sort of bring me out of the game a bit, or like inwardly, I sort of like shake my head or whatever. But again, even if someone does that, as long as they're doing it every five minutes, it's not going to ruin a game for me. So I think if you if you look like I say, if, even if someone makes in the space of like a four hour game, if someone makes like five or six Monty Python references and they take like five minutes each, it's still less than half an hour's worth of the game and I can fully enjoy the rest of it. So it doesn't, doesn't really bother me that much at the end of the day. Now, if someone was doing it all the way through a game, that'd be different, but that'd be the same with any sort of disruptive thing. Right. No, I, yeah, I agree with that. So, so we've gotten a little bit far afield from, from rules here talking about immersion and whatnot, but it's a good discussion. The, the other thing that, that you have experience with that, that I was curious about asking it, is Stars Without Numbers. You, you've yes. played Stars Without Numbers before. Yes, I've got a copy of it here. Yeah. So s- talking about rules and, and how rules maybe affect the fiction and how we interact with rules, you know, there's a lot of talk, and, and, I, bel- and I believe there's truth to it, the idea that the right rules can enforce genre, can help, yes. you know, get you into it, you know, in the genre, and yeah. using the wrong rule set can it won't ruin the game, but it won't reinforce the genre as much as if you're using rules designed for that genre. Yeah, and I mean, this is something I've been speaking with um, with some of my friends about recently because we've we've played a lot of these Power of the Apocalypse games like Band of Blades and Scum and Villainy, and they're very sort of laser focused on portraying one type of game. And we've been talking a fair bit recently about the the benefits of having a game sort of focused like that. Is if you want to run the type of game it's offering to you. It has all the support and all the rules are aimed to help you do that. Whereas if you wanted to take something like Scum and Villainy, which is about portraying like star traders, like Scum scum of the Universe sort of deal, then, and you went, oh, actually, I want to run a game where you're all like goodly sort of solar heroes, like trying to to bring down an an ancient empire. The game will not help you with that at all because it is not designed for that. But... In the same token, there's also benefits and um, downsides of using a more generic system. So, like you're saying, if you use a generic system, you might have to do whatever you want with it. But out of the box, it might not provide the support for the type of fiction that you're hoping to sort of steer your game towards, like you were just saying. 
Right, because different mechanics or mechanisms, depending who, what term you prefer, but you know, certain, um, well, like dice, for example. So yeah. certain mechanics will enforce different things, and, and I and I mentioned stars without numbers because it's a good example of this. You, you know, if, if you're using two or three d six, it's going to give you a bell curve. Where yes. if you're using a d twenty, it's just a flat. You have an equal chance of getting any number on that d twenty. Yeah, you, know, you have flat five percent chance of any number. And so the games of the bell curves, characters tend to be more competent at normal levels. I mean, depending on how the how the rules are set up and the skills are set yeah. up or whatnot. Where with the d twenty, it's people use turns swingy, but mm-hmm. the but you know you, you have just much chance of rolling a one as you you know a, oh, yeah. a one is a is a twenty. So and to be fair with the bell curve, you have just much chance of rolling a three as an eighteen, but still your successful roles are more likely. And I think one thing stars out numbers does it's interesting. It's Kevin Crawford's game. All his games are wonderful, but with mm-hmm. his skills in that game, the, the skills are on that 2d six spell curve. Yes. So you tend to be pretty competent at your skills, but combat is on a D 20, yeah. which makes combat more swingy, but also more unpredictable. Yes. Which maybe mirrors reality a little bit better or maybe yeah. movies better. So. Yeah. I mean, I, I think certainly because obviously stars without number is a, a sci-fi game. And I think certainly the, the, the swinginess of um, combat suits that because it, in, I was talking to this, cause I'm running going white star at the minute for some people, which is like white box D and D sci-fi. Um, but um, a couple of my players are saying like how deadly combat is in that. And we were discussing the fact that in in a sort of standard D and D game, there's a certain range of damage you tend to be doing at low levels with basic weapons, and until you get like a bit higher up and you get like a bit of magic under your belt, that range of damage, unless you're a spellcaster, doesn't really change that much. So you can be as great a fighter as you want, but if you're still if you're still armed with the same D8 damage sword, you're still doing D8 damage. Whereas in a sci-fi setting, anyone with enough money can walk into a supply depot and be like, give me one of them, give me one of them super duper laser rifles over there. And they can suddenly be like dealing out a vast amount of damage. So I think in sci-fi games, the the onus of combat shifts a lot less to, oh, we're just going to wade in and like duke it out with them with like weaponry. Because you could get hit by one laser blast and that's it. It's game over for you if like someone's carried a big enough weapon. So I think the swinginess doesn't impact it as, it as much because like choosing your position and trying to take advantage of like um, scenery and cover and stuff like that becomes a lot more prevalent. So I think people are naturally more cautious in certainly in like a, a sci-fi setting, like um, stars that number, obviously there's lots of different sci-fi, but um, so I don't think the swinginess has as much of an impact on it. However, as you rightly say, skills uses the 2d6 in stars of that number. And I think that's because skills become more important in like a science fiction or a modern setting. Because in fantasy, we're all like, yeah, okay, he's a warrior, he can fight, he can manufacture weapons, he can whatever. That's fine, we can all assume that. But as you start getting into like sci-fi, because there's all this new technology and there's spaceships, there's computers, there's hacking, it suddenly becomes more important. Like, can your character use this bit of technology? And what about this bit of technology? Okay, so you can repair a spaceship. Does that mean you can fly one? Does that mean you can use the computer on one? So I think skills become a lot more important in that regard. So it's necessary for the game to make it so 
you're a little bit more competent with skills, whereas it doesn't really need to worry about the combat as much. Right. The the, the other thing I like is, although there are stat bonuses, so stars that numbers, if if somebody hasn't read it, it, it is OSR-ish. You know, it, it's basically an OSR system. And, and your attributes are the standard six, and it has 3D6 gen. There are different generation methods, but typically your, your attributes are, you know, 3D18. Yeah. And, and it, it's a pretty flat curve. There are bonuses for high or low attributes, but normally you're going to have zero, maybe a plus one or minus one in that. Yeah, pretty much. Um, but what I like with that is you're not, unlike a game like Black Hack, where your attributes are very vital to whether you succeed or not because you're doing a saving throw against a tribute for every effectively for your skills or anything you try to do yeah you, you know your tributes aren't as important for a lot of things which in real life is true too it depends on the skill you're trying to do of course yeah but yeah yeah so i i, I don't know at that point or the well so i haven't actually played with stars that numbers it's been a little and, and i kind of page through it but do the attributes affect the skills at all or no it, yeah they do you get to okay. uh you basically you get to add the attribute bonus and your skill level to the uh, mm-hmm. 2d6 roll. However, because, as you've said, the attribute bonuses don't tend to be massive, it, it might make a difference if you're like one or two, two off succeeding. Then you might be like, oh, yeah, because I've got strength plus two or whatever, I've succeeded. But in the vast majority of skill roles, the level of your skill is far more important than the attribute, which I, I think works fine because your i don't know let's say an intelligence based skill so even if you've not got like a massive modifier to your intelligence if you've spent like five years like learning how to learning how to like repair a gun or or use a computer then i think that would have far more impact than oh i'm just a bit clever right well yeah look at picking locks it yeah, yeah being more dexterous you know, with your, with your hands is going to no doubt help, you know, maybe yeah. feel this or that, but, you know, having hundreds or thousands of hours picking locks probably is going to go a lot further. Well, that's it. Exactly. And we, we know from real life that having a natural aptitude for something can be a great springboard, but if you have a natural aptitude and you get no training whatsoever, you will not be as good as someone who maybe didn't have the natural flair you had for whatever the subject was, but they've had 10 years experience with it and you've not. Right. You, you won't be able to match up against them. So like I said the, um, the attribute bonus, the natural flair, if you will, can be a little bit of a help, but it's no substitute for having those skill levels, i.e. the training and the experience as you sort of go along and certainly as you get sort of later on in the game. So I've played in a few campaigns of stars with that number as you sort of get further along, it basically seems to me from my memories of it, that it becomes more important about what skills and um, what foci you've got. And foci are sort of like the feats okay. in, um, in stars with that number, although they're really sort of like a, they're more like a sort of a little package of like abilities where you like you buy a foci and it'll have like a loose set of little abilities related to a particular subject that you'll have, and then you can sort of there's normally like you can buy it once and you'll get certain bonuses. You can buy then take the foci again, and you'll get increased bonuses in those areas. And I think you get one. It's either every three or four levels. I forget. No, it's fine. It's 
Yeah, but the the key being the idea that these rules help reinforce that genre, but you know by supporting it. So one thing I know so stars out numbers and and not to hit on it too much, but they do have a supplement for effectively like a cyberpunk supplement, and and they have yeah. you, you know support that. And, and recently I've joined a group. Have been playing some Cyberpunk Red, which is the new version of Cyberpunk. I don't know if you yeah. ever played any. I, I've not you played, played it, but I've heard of it. Yeah, so, I've played Shadowrun briefly. Yeah, yeah. So Cyberpunk 2020 was the game in the 90s, and, mm-hmm. and that game it used the interlock system. And but the important thing, what I want to get to here is that game used hit locations, yeah. and the way it broke up, pretty much it was a very deadly game. So so if you hit somebody in the head. Or you you know you you would drop somebody really quickly in a firefight. In Cyberpunk Red, they've dropped the hit locations for the most part, and, and they've done a couple other changes, so the character is a lot more durable. Okay. And that's something that you know does. It's still a great game. It's a fun game. Cyberpunk Red has done some things like the hacking rules are a lot better, and, and so they're different. They, they've definitely made some improvements, and they've streamlined the game so it runs faster on the table. You're not looking up charts and things like that. Yeah. But it doesn't feel near as deadly. You know, if, if somebody can absorb, you know, four or five rounds of handgun, you know, in the chest kind yeah. of thing without armor there, you know, it's where in where in the old game, you know, one or two shots and they're flop, they're down. Right. That felt a lot more deadly. And, and so that those kind of little changes definitely affect the, the feel of a game. Yeah. And I mean, I think you can see this in something like um, Stars Without Number because as, as opposed to like D and D, which let's face it, it, that's what it's based on. If if you look at D and D, you start off in some older versions of D and D at least. You start off with a relatively small amount of hit points. Everything's quite deadly. I mean, if you've got if you're a wizard with like two hit points, a dagger that does D four, you can get stabbed once with a dagger. That's you done. Mm-hmm. But when you get up to higher levels, and obviously we know we know hit points are an abstract measure of like how durable you are. But um, when you get up to higher level and you're like a, a wizard rocking around with like, oh, I've got 40 hit points or whatever, suddenly that person with like the 1D4 dagger, well, that, that's nothing. If they Even if they leap out at you with surprise and like, ah, there's my dagger and sticking your back, you're not going to die immediately from that. Whereas I think if you look at something like Stars Without Number, you well, you perhaps start, you start off with more hit points than standard D game after that you only really increase them very gradually and very slowly and because there's a lot of weapons that can do a lot of damage because you've got science fiction laser guns and power swords and stuff like that combat seems more deadly so i mean we played a campaign that then you us around for quite some time and even when we were like at higher level you get into a fight with someone with some like slightly more heavy duty weaponry and you're like if I take a couple of shots from that, that's me done. Or if you're in a spaceship fight, you're like, oh, great, we've got all these damaging weapons. But then you're like, oh, our ship's been hit by a missile. If we get hit by another one, that's the ship blown up and we're all dead. So it, it sort of it still has that sort of deadly feel to it whilst still using the, um, the D&D engine just because of those few little tweaks, like, like you were saying, those little tweaks can make an awful lot of difference to the final result of playing the game. Mm-hmm. And and that's where, although, uh, you know, Che Webster and, and Barry over at Shadow GM champion GURPS, and, and GURPS is a perfectly fine game. And in the most of the negatives that other people will lay against it 
aren't really valid. They either are too many rules and this and that because it's well, it's a game you add things to. I was going to say I'm going to have to hold my hands up here. Uh, that I, I mean, don't tell Che, but like I've never actually played GURPS, although I do have like a massive collection of like GURPS books, mainly because I've sort of I've mined the GURPS books for like so many ideas previously. Like I've got a lot of their historical supplements. Um, mm. I've used the I've used the GURPS Imperial Rome supplement. Lord knows how many times for different games. And I've got a lot of the fourth edition stuff, even if I'm not going to run it, because I don't really know many people who play GURPS. And I'm not saying it's not a game I wouldn't try, because if someone was running it and I was free, I'd be like, yeah, I'll give it a go. I'll, I'll try any game at least once. But um, I quite like the books. There's a lot of interesting ideas in them. Even if you're not going to use the GURPS system, you can still like mine it for ideas. De- definitely. I-, I agree with that 100%. And, and I've got... Yeah, I'll tend to buy if I find something interesting. It doesn't matter what the system is. Yeah, I'll buy it to to mine it for ideas. You, yeah. you know, I don't have any issue buying a, a Pathfinder adventure if I want to pull ideas out of it, or you know, whatever. It doesn't matter what the game system is because you know the mechanics aren't that important. It's if, like if you're a, pulling fiction or you're pulling information out of it. So when my um, my wife was starting up her um, Star Trek game, right? She was using Fate for it. It's now on hiatus because of the holidays. But um, she went straight to some of like the the GURPS Star Trek books that we've got some of the old GURPS Federation books, and was sort of like pulling ideas out of them because she wanted to lean more heavily on like the original series Star Trek than like the later series. And she was taking bits out of the new Modiphius game, GURPS Star Trek from all over the place. Right. Well, I'm. So I was running, or am running, we were almost done, a Barbarian's Lemuria game set in ancient Greece. But I pulled information from, you know, Rollmaster supplements and, you know, all kinds of different supplements, yeah. the different systems, you know, but, and just converted it over. But what, what I wasn't going to pin you down on, on a GURPS rules question, and I'm not picking on GURPS, but a, a more generic system like that, they do have tweaks in GURPS to try to push it towards a certain genre or another genre. It's like Savage Worlds has that and BRP kind of has that depending on which version of uh, basic role-playing is BRP, which is the system that Rick RuneQuest and Call Cthulhu is based on. I I know you know that, John. I'm just mentioning for Yeah, I was going to say, I've got got a copy of the big gold book somewhere. Yeah, I I do too. I I, I don't think they make that, or at least I don't think they have a hard copy anymore. I I I seem to remember I picked it up at my local gaming store, so I I saw it and I was like, oh yeah, that's that's the system that Call Cthulhu is run with, completely unaware that it was also available as like a generic system, so I picked up a copy of it. I've not got around to running it, although I have played a, a fair bit of Call of Cthulhu, which obviously uses various iterations of the system depending on what you play it you, you know brp is actually a really good system it's it's what it is and it's it's really good for more mundane characters it's not and you could argue this with a lot of generic systems they're not great with superheroes and you know yeah. like superman yeah. kind of characters but the nice thing about brp is and and I'll, i'm a self-admitted fan of percentile dice and and d100 systems but if you're teaching somebody that's not into gaming you're teaching a new person it's very easy to explain D100 to somebody. Oh, yeah. And the I mean, percentages if you, and the If numbers. you can say to someone, you've got a 50% chance of doing this, everyone can understand that, whether you've never seen a role-playing game in your life. Whereas if you're – I'm not saying it's a complicated system, but even with something like the, the D20 system, if you had no familiarity with that or D&D at all, if someone says to you, like, all right, okay, you've got, a, you've got three skill ranks in this, if you don't have the frame of reference to know like how that relates to the role, saying mm-hmm. you've got three skill ranks and it doesn't mean anything, 
it's only when you go like, okay, so you've got a you've got a difficulty of fifteen, so you're going to get to roll a d twenty, add three to it. If you get fifteen or over, you've succeeded, and then you can go like, right, okay, that contextualizes what those three experience points are worth. Whereas if you've got like a a generic system that relates back to like basic mathematics, which let's face it, that's what a, a D one hundred system does. It's far more easy if you're a if you're not a sort of died in the wall gamer who has all these references that we can pull on without really even thinking about it. Just to say like, all right, okay, so what you're saying is if I buy um if I buy put fifty of my points in this, I've got like an equal chance of succeeding and failing. You can go yeah, and that's it. That's all that needs to be said about it. Yep. Yeah. So that's. So I appreciate you coming on the show. I, Ooh, I don't know. Do you, I need it, yeah. Um, I, I guess we mentioned Red Dice Diaries RPG podcast, your podcast. Yeah. Your wife. And I, I know the holidays has been a little bit slow. The latest episode I've heard is your Goblin episode. Yeah, that's the last one we put out. Yeah. Yeah, which is a great episode. Um, I know for a while, for a long while before you podcasted, even you, you were doing YouTube videos. That- yeah, I mean, I, I still I still try and do the odd YouTube video at the minute. Uh, I've currently got a playlist with Homestead Building, which is about um, representing different types of villains in RPGs, which I'm sort of working my way through. And I've sort of done like a sort of semi sort of animated style of video um, rather than having like a full video. And that's partly because I can record the audio track and then just sort of like do the video, the animated bits afterwards, which makes it a lot quicker to edit. Because um, at the minute, with like various restrictions on my time, I, I found it very difficult to record a YouTube video and edit it to get it to the standard I would want to. Um, and that's part of the reason why I started doing more of the podcasting, because as I'm sure you know, it's a lot quicker. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's a lot quicker to edit an audio file than it is to edit like a full video file to make it look sort of seamless. So... I'm still trying to do the odd YouTube video when I get time. But like I say, it is more sort of these sort of like animated, sort of semi-animated ones now where I can just record a vocal track and then put the sort of like the animation over it afterwards just because it, it's quicker for me to do. And as you were rightly saying, because uh, both myself and my wife are on sort of like quite different time scales. Like she's at work at the minute, started at like three o'clock. She won't be getting back until about 9 p.m. my time. And then when I work during the day, I'm working from like, so five six in the morning until like four in the afternoon so it's difficult certainly at the minute with everything being crazy because it's christmas trying to find time when we can like both sit down together have time to plan out an episode do our bits of research and then sort of sit down and actually do the recording and we've been trying to sort of do it ourselves you know like, all right we're, this is the topic we're doing we'll both go away and like do our independent little bits of research and then we'll sort of come back and we'll put it all together but it's been pretty difficult to find the time to sort of sit down and record them at the moment the the goblins one came out like a week after we'd hoped it would just because we, we couldn't find time to when we were both sort of so sort of energetic enough and awake enough to both sit down and uh actually do because we, we don't get to spend a lot of um, a lot of like quality time together unfortunately except when we see each other either one of us is getting ready for work or has just come back from work and is tired or you're like right okay well we could sit down and record this but like, oh this job in the house hasn't been done right this hasn't been done right so we've got to go and do that first and then by the time you've done everything else you're like <sighs> or like f- for me uh, it'll be a case of i'll be like all right okay well i've been on the i've been on like i, I did um, an 11 hour day last a couple of weeks ago and I was like I've been on the computer for like 11 hours all day 
I then don't want to spend like another like three or four hours sat in front of the computer in the evening to go back to bed to like rinse and repeat the next day. So it's difficult, but we are what we're hoping to do in the with the podcast certainly in the new year is sort of like have a look at how our schedules are when things have settled down and sort of work out how we're going to sort of rework our schedule around doing podcast episodes. Because both me and Hannah very much enjoy recording the episodes and it's great to sit down and like chat about these things. Obviously both being role players, as we know, us role players, we love to talk about role play. So being able to sit down with my wife, Hannah, and just have a chat about things and get different perspectives and discuss things is is great fun. But by the same token, we then, we want to be doing it when we're at our best, you know, when we're, we're energised, we're enthusiastic, so that comes across. But we're both very keen to carry on with it. And we're hoping in the new year, once our schedules have settled down a little bit, we'll be able to start like, putting out more regular episodes again although i don't know if we'll get out any now before christmas i suspect not right well that's a excuse me that's okay for anybody if by chance anybody hasn't listened to your episodes or seen your youtube there, there still is a fair back catalog to those so there's plenty of people can go back and and, and listen to or go back oh, and yeah, watch. The, yeah there's plenty plenty of old um youtube videos i've um i've put up and um like podcast episodes we've got and um I've recently, after a suggestion from someone on Discord, I've like revived my old sort of Discord account, and I'm using that to host um, audio versions of like the actual plays for my um, my old school essentials campaign. Because um, someone suggested it to me, so like oh, I, I can't really watch the YouTube videos of them, but like, have you thought about putting them on an audio format? And I was like, well, I've got this old Anchor account sat there not doing anything, so we're using Buzzsprout now for the podcast. And I was like, it doesn't take me much just to like pull the audio files out of the video. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I'll, I'll stick it up there. You know, if it gets a handful of extra listens, happy days. If it's useful to someone, that's great. But um, that, that seems to be really quite popular, the the old school essentials, like audio actual plays, which I was quite surprised by. I mean, don't get me wrong, I, I love old school essentials, but I didn't really know there was a, a market out there for audio only actual plays until someone suggested it to me. No, yeah, that's great. So what I'll do is I'm going to have a link to all, all three of those. In fact, I'll. I, do you have a link to every all that on your website? Maybe I'll just put a link to your website on. I there. do indeed. If you uh... okay, yeah. So we'll just link to your website that has everything on there. And if anybody hasn't heard or seen any of those, you know, any of that media, go check it out. It's well worth it. There's also blog posts, some really good blog posts on there. There's a wonderful tavern fight generator. And there, there's some other things on there that are really good. So I highly recommend just poking around his website and checking everything out. Yeah, there's a um, there's a link on the on the website to which I've just posted in the in the chat for this, where it's like it's like a where to find me mm-hmm. um, link, and that has links to all like Facebook, MeWe, Twitch, the the blog, YouTube, the podcast, etc. Great. Yeah, I'll share that for everybody, and. And any parting thoughts or parting words for the audience? No, I mean, I think just to, I mean, obviously, first of all, just say thank you very much for having me on. I very much enjoyed it. Um, the, the second, just to echo what I said at the start, is for me, it's never, I think sort of saying that a debate's about whether a game's too complex or not complex enough or vice versa it, it is a bit of a sort of... A, a bit of a sort of non-secretary, it does, doesn't really work for me. For me, it's always been about is the is the complexity of this game appropriate for what the game's trying to do? And does it drive the fun forwards? Does it make the game more entertaining? If 
a, a game can be humongously complicated, but if that compl- if that level of complexity feels warranted, and it's actively contributing to the fun, then I have no problem with it. Whereas if a game is like sort of bloated and overcomplicated and it doesn't add anything, that's when I start saying like, do we really need this level of complexity? And like like you say with um, when you were talking about Cyberpunk Red, is you're saying like there's certain gains you've got from making it more simple, but it's also lost a few little things along the way. So I think it's all about deciding whether you think the gains you get from simplifying something outweigh what you're losing. It's what I think it comes down to at the end of the day. Right. There's no there's no one fit for everything. No, of course not. Although, and I'll put a link to this specific episode in the show notes for folks. You have a good discussion about burning wheel with yeah. you, you know with your co-players over there. And one thing that about burning wheel that's nice is at its core, it doesn't have to be have to be it. It like GURPS is catches the complaint that it's too complex. And there are a number of complex subsystems of Burning Wheel, but you don't have to use them. You only use them when it's appropriate. Well, that's it. And one of the things, without getting into too much detail, but one of the things I really like about my game is from the get-go, Luke Crane, the the creator of it, says to you right from the very start, look, don't try and use all of this stuff straight away in your game. Here's the core bits that you need to do. The rest is sort of, sort of like modular bits that you can use or not as you see fit. So there's like, there's a whole, in Burning Wheel, there's a whole system for effectively dueling. So, you know, if you really want to get down to like the nitty gritty of like a, a high stakes duel or like a, a vital sort of like important combat, you know, you're facing off against like Sauron or like some big Dark Lord or whatever, and it's the final conflict of the game. But you can also bring it down to a very simple role for combat using the core mechanics if you need to. So if you're if you're just fighting some like mooks, you don't need to get into this whole complex dueling system. And even if you're fighting your main bad guy, if you don't want to, you don't have to use the complex dueling system. But it's there as an option if you if a little bit more detail you think it will add to your game and it'll add to like that climactic sort of combat, then you can add it in. But the author actively says, look, you here's the main bit of the game take which of these little modular bits you want, but even if you do, introduce them gradually, let your players get comfortable with the main mechanics first, and then maybe start sort of like introducing a few of these little bits, but only bring in what you need. And I, I really like games where the sort of the um, the authors like set their stall out at the, the very start of the game, and they're like, this is what we're trying to do. Here's how we're trying to do it. Here's what we've provided to you as the player and the GM to help you tell this type of story. Right, and and now we're... maybe we'll consider this a postscript sorry about this listeners but one other neat thing about burning wheel i think is well worth putting out there and this is in the spinoffs of burning wheel too which i I would push you towards arlen walker's podcast live from pelham's wasteland he talks quite a bit about the spinoff games from burning wheel but one neat thing about burning wheel is character advancement the character the players get to set their goals and how their characters advance, which is really neat. You're not stuck with gaining experience by getting treasure or meeting story necessary nebulous goals that may or may not be what your character would be motivated to do. But you pick what motivates your character, and as you are achieving and working towards those goals, that's how you advance your character. Yeah, I mean, it, it also has another thing that I like, I very much like in games, is that it has like a, a sort of life path like character creation system. 
And that can be a little bit difficult if you come into the game with like a sort of set idea of like, I want to play this type of character because you'll have to sort of like work your way through sort of backwards almost to get to mm-hmm. where you want to be. But if like, as I tend to do, you like you roll up to a game excited about the concept of the game, but you don't roll up with a pre-designed character. It's like uh, if someone says, oh, I'm running a sword and sorcery game. I don't immediately go like, oh, I want to play a warrior with like, it was like a barbarian, like a big broadsword. I'll roll up to the game thinking, oh, I've got a few ideas, but like, let me have a look at the system and let me see how it goes during character gen. And I, I like the fact in Burning Wheel because of that, if you just roll up with like no real idea of what to do, you can make a few choices on this life path thing. And not only are you creating your character, you've also sort of built up a bit of a, a bit of a backstory for your character because you know that like, oh, he was he was a peasant for like four years and then he signed on to the guard for another three years and he picked up a few combat skill and then he was injured and he became a blacksmith or whatever. And the the character creation becomes a part of the game. It's not a separate thing you have to do to get to the game. It's all sort of part of it and the the choices you make sort of there then inform how your characters play during the game. And I really like that. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good system that I think... Mm. You, either people tend to love or hate it, and I think yeah. the people that hate it, I, I wonder how many have actually, you, you know, either played it or given it a fair shake as far as checking it out. Well, I, I think one of its great strengths is also, unfortunately, one of its um, weaknesses. It's a game that really, due to like the advancement, as you were saying, it, it does, and some of the things, it does really benefit from being played as an extended campaign. So you can run smaller, and I've played in like a few sort of like tournament packs where it's shorter games. But in my opinion, in order to get the best out of it, you really have to play like a longer term campaign. And obviously we know being GMs, it's much harder to get people together and to get them to commit for a long campaign than it is for a short to medium term game. And I don't really feel you get the best out of Burning Wheel if you if you're on a short game. So I think whilst it's geared towards a campaign and it does that greatly, if you can get like, if you can get a group of players together to play in Burning Wheel, you will have great fun with it for like a long campaign. But also it's a weakness because you can't really just sort of like bounce into like a, a Burning Wheel one shot and get the same experience out of it. Right. So I think well, it's a bit hampered by that. Yeah, I, I could see that. Well, again, thank you so much for joining me. I hope you and Hannah have a Merry Christmas. And and to you again, thank you very much yeah. for me. I very much enjoyed it. I'll quietly sneak my way back on if you let me at some point in the future. Oh, yeah, without a doubt, without a doubt. Take care, and we'll talk to you again soon. Bye. Who's on the phone? your auntie or a joke about your spouse but the operator's screaming it's coming from inside the house what's in the box what's in the box what's in the box what's in the box well the audience is pretty sure he took a pretty head and the only question left is if i fail shoot him dead bring on the gold bring on the gold i want some There is a dustman in your moilers by the tipper And I'm assuming that your partner back there in the wood chipper Don't look away
train. 